the passage that we're going to be looking at is from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses uh, 5 uh, through 13. There is great power uh, in words, isn't there? Yet we sort of live in a culture where words don't seem to have a lot of meaning and where they sometimes can mean the very opposite of what we mean. For example, if I say to you guys, this church is bad, well, what do I mean? Am I insulting you? Am I saying that you're not a good church? No, I'm saying you're cool, right? I'm saying that you're hip. Um, but we live in a culture where people will often say something, but they don't exactly mean what they're saying. Uh, and we have ways of taking words and sort of twisting them around uh, where they lack substance, where there's a lack of weight to the words, you know, that we say. Do you know what I mean? A lack of substance, right? We, we say things very casually uh, and don't really mean what we're saying. Uh, in the passage that we're looking at today, uh, it's about words. Uh, it's about words that are spoken uh, and words uh, that are said. Uh, these are important uh, words, uh, striking uh, words. So let us uh, stand uh, again and let us uh, read, or let me read Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. This is God's holy and inspired word. When he, had, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God and Father, we pray now that you would give us uh, insight uh, and knowledge as we come to your word. Uh, speak to us, uh, we pray, through your spirit. Uh, speak those words that we need to hear. And Lord, may we respond in faith and in belief. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. With the beginning of uh, chapter 8, we sort of move into a new section uh, in the book of Matthew. Uh, you probably can or recognize or are familiar with the book of Matthew that we just, uh, with like chapters 5 through 7, it's a lot of teaching. Jesus has the Sermon on the Mount, and he gives a lot of instruction uh, about how uh, the believer uh, is to live. In chapter 8, uh, Jesus changes gears and goes out 
to do ministry. And it sort of reminds me of my children's education. Uh, this past month, my youngest son graduated from high school. And all three of my boys went to the tech school, uh, Neshoba Technical School. And it was always uh, the, the teaching you know, program would be one week of academics followed by one week of shop. And I sort of feel like that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, he's had some teaching. He's instructed them. He's been guiding them. But now they go out on the road. They go out to do ministry uh, and to uh, demonstrate uh, the love of God to people. And so Matthew 8, uh, 5 through 8, is the Sermon on Mount. And at the beginning of chapter 8, he goes on the road and begins uh, by healing a leper, followed by the healing of the centurion's servant that we're looking at today. Um, and then he also uh, goes to Peter's house and heals his mother-in-law. But the passage begins with Matthew telling us that uh, what was about to take place uh, was as Jesus entered uh, the town of Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum lay on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. In biblical times, it was a very significant, uh, a main trading uh, place for people uh, to come. Uh, it was also uh, filled with people who had, whose profession, their vocation, was fishermen, which probably explains why Peter lived there, right? Uh, because so many of people of his, his uh, vocation uh, settled there as well near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it was also uh, a main trading route uh, for people that were coming from the north down to the south, coming from Damascus down to Egypt, and then going from Egypt uh, back up uh, to Damascus. And this sort of explains why the centurion uh, is there. Uh, the centurion uh, is there, uh, established by the Roman government uh, to provide, uh, you know, to exercise law uh, and order in that place. But the centurion uh, comes to Capernaum, comes to Jesus, uh, and, and, and comes to him with this concern that he has. And in verse 6, the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Uh, we do not know what disease afflicted the servant, uh, but from the soldier's response and the urgency that you can sense in his voice, this servant was very dear to him, and this servant was very, very sick, uh, perhaps uh, near death. Uh, and we could tell that this servant was very dear to him by the word uh, that is used. Uh, in the Greek, uh, the word that is used is pos, which speaks of one who is very close, who is very dear, uh, rather than the typical word for a servant, uh, which is doulos. So this servant is special uh, to this centurion, and he comes to Jesus uh, and seeks healing. But what is missing uh, in his words to Jesus? An appeal doesn't come to Jesus. He comes to Jesus and explains the situation, but he doesn't tell Jesus what he wants him to do. Uh, he doesn't come to him and, and ask him, Lord, heal my servant, or uh, is he going to die? How long uh, does he have? He doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't appeal uh, to Jesus. He, he tells Jesus what the situation is, that his servant is very sick and suffering 
terribly. And it sort of reminds us, it reminds me of uh, how people often are like that. You know, they, they know what they're asking is a big ask. And, and they don't want to come right out and say what they want. They tell you what the situation is in hoping that you will come to the conclusion that they're looking for. Uh, it's like children when they're wanting something really big for Christmas, right? They, they want to tell you, oh, Daddy, I just love horses. Horses are so nice, but they don't come out and say, Dad, I want a horse. Or if we want a raise at work, um, we'll have to talk to our boss about all the things that we're doing, how much we love the company, how we want to stay with the company, uh, and how you know, we're working hard for our family and trying to make ends meet and stuff like that, hoping that our boss will get the point uh, that we need a raise. Uh, but we don't really come out and say, uh, uh, boss, I need a raise. Now, I will say a friend of mine just recently shared with me that they did that and the boss did give them a raise. But most of us are not uh, going uh, to do that. Well, here, this servant uh, comes uh, to Jesus, uh, tells him what the situation, uh, but doesn't specifically ask what he wants. But Jesus uh, responds in verse 7 and says, I will come and heal him. So Jesus understood what the man wanted. And so Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Now, for those of us who are Christians and have studied scripture, this is, this is typical of Jesus, right? He wants to help. He wants to relieve uh, the hurting and the sickness uh, that people are confronted with. But his response to the centurion is a real contrast to the way he responded to the Seraphonician woman. Remember that occasion where she came asking a very similar thing. Her daughter was suffering from demonic oppression, and she came to Jesus asking uh, that he would heal her. Uh, and Jesus, on that occasion, if you remember, didn't respond by saying, I will come and heal her. What did he say? He responded in a way that sounded very rude. Uh, to her. Uh, uh, Jesus at first ignored her, but then he said, uh, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That doesn't sound very kind. So it's a real contrast to the way uh, he responds uh, to this uh, to this centurion. Uh, the Lord did, in fact, heal the, uh, the Seraphonician woman's daughter, uh, but it was after she pressed her case and said, yes, uh, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So what is uh, with Jesus' response here? Uh, he responds uh, immediately and says, I will come and heal, uh, heal his servant. Why is he so ready to go heal the centurion's servant uh, that he doesn't even voice a gripe or, or even question uh, the fact that this guy uh, is a Gentile and works for the Roman occupying force. So Jesus' reply here in the Greek is somewhat ambiguous. Uh, it could be uh, a declarative statement. I will come and heal him. But it also could be understood as a, a question, uh, uh, an objection of one nature. Uh, typically in English language, 
we have what? We have a subject, we have a verb, we have a direct object, right? So Jesus says, I will come and heal him. So I is the subject, I will come is the, or is the come is the verb, and I will heal him, the direct object. But in Greek, it's different. They often will have those personal pronouns, I, we, you, and so forth. They'll have it uh, wrapped up in the verb, and you will understand what the verb is by the case endings. So in this case, in this passage, the word, the distinctive word for I appears at the very beginning. Jesus saying, I uh, will come uh, and heal your servant. Uh, Jesus is saying in such a way that it's emphasizing uh, uh, the I uh, there, and where Jesus is uh, suggesting or is understanding or wanting this centurion to understand the possible objection that he would have as a Jew going into the home of a Gentile. And so Jesus, I think, is saying, is giving, is, is making a, is giving a question uh, here uh, to this man. Um, he is saying uh, to him, I should go to your home uh, and heal uh, this servant. And it makes sense when you consider how the centurion responded, right? I mean, if he had come to him and said, okay, my servant is sick, and Jesus says, I will come and heal him, then he got what he wanted, right? Jesus is going to come and heal his servant. But he doesn't respond uh, uh, immediately, but rather uh, uh, states how unworthy uh, he is. Uh, verse 8 says, Lord, I am not worthy have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority and with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The words of the centurion here uh, made some significant uh, admonitions about himself and who he knows that he is speaking to. Uh, the centurion humbles himself by acknowledging his inferior status before Jesus, not because uh, Jesus is a Jew and he is a Gentile, uh, but rather he understands that Jesus is Lord and he is only a man. And he responds to him with great faith. He says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion humbles and recognizes Jesus' unlimited authority. But where does he get this idea? How, do, how does he come to that conclusion? Well, certainly he understands as a centurion uh, that he is one who works uh, for the emperor and that what he says uh, is, in effect, what the emperor uh, wants. Therefore, he his words are not meaningless, but carry authority because of who he works for. Uh, in the same way, uh, this man understands that Jesus uh, is one who is working, uh, who has authority because of who he serves, and that is God Almighty. Uh, he comes to Jesus uh, and believes uh, that Jesus can accomplish this 
and that he could even do it from a distance, that Jesus doesn't even need to make a doctor's visit to the house, that he could simply say the word. You wonder, where does he get that from? Well, we see typically, what does Jesus do? When somebody comes to him and asks for healing, Jesus will often go to that person and lay his hand on them, just like he did to the leper. He came to the leper, put his hand on the leper, and the leper was healed. Or we see later on uh, in the passage that immediately follows where Jesus goes to the home, Peter, and heals his mother-in-law. What does he do? He comes to her near her bed, and he takes his hand, and he puts it on her hand, and she's immediately healed. So much that she got up and started serving Jesus. But in those cases, Jesus would touch uh, uh, the person, and they would be healed. But on this occasion, this centurion believed that Jesus had so much authority, so much power, that he could simply say the word, and his servant would be healed. That is incredible uh, faith. Uh, and Jesus uh, responds uh, with surprise, as we see here. It says that Jesus marveled uh, at what this man uh, said. Would I be out? Would somebody bring me my drink that's right there? <laughs> my mouth is just all of a sudden very dry. I'm so sorry. Thank you. So Jesus uh, is surprised. Uh, this word, thamazo, that appears in the Greek, is the only occasion where it talks about Jesus being marveled, or marveling at something, being surprised by something. You think, well, how can that be? You know, he's God. Well, Jesus is still in his incarnate state. He's still uh, a man. There are certain things that uh, on occasions will come to him that he wasn't necessarily uh, understanding that it was going to come. Uh, and therefore, he's a little surprised. He's surprised by this centurion, who is a Gentile, who has not grown up understanding the teachings of, of the law or of God or the things that God has done. And yet, he has such a tremendous uh, faith. And, and I could just imagine how this was going over with the people who were listening. Most likely, who were the people that were there? Well, the disciples the other immediate followers of Jesus, uh, probably many curiosity seekers that were wondering about this rabbi. Is he really uh, legit? Um, is he the one that is to come? And they're hearing Jesus uh, respond to them uh, by saying that he is surprised. He, he marvels at what this man has said. I sort of can see it being like a math teacher, right, who's been trying all year to teach this group of kids uh, the equations of calculus, right? And a new student comes to the class, and she's teaching something and asks the, asks the class for the answer. And who stands up? The person 
who's brand new. He comes up to the chalkboard, solves the problem with great ease. The math teacher probably looks at it and says, then is just surprised that this person who has not even been in the class all year seems to understand this. So she takes the chalk back from the, the, the student and looks at the class with chagrin. I think that's what Jesus is doing here, a little chagrin, uh, that this man who has had no formal training, who has not grown up um, among uh, God's people, seems to intuitively understand how the equation works. So Jesus uh, makes a declaration there. Let's look at verse 11. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the feast uh, that Jesus is referring to here is the great messianic banquet uh, that is prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says on this occasion, or on the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, and well-refined. Uh, what a glorious meal that is going to be. I, I'm sort of getting hungry uh, just thinking about it. But this same event is spoken of again uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, uh, where it says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So this event that Jesus is referring to is a wedding uh, that is going to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, where people uh, from all uh, kinds uh, will come uh, and be with the Lord. But Jesus is saying something about what this meal is going to be like. We know at every wedding, what is one of the most important things that the bride and groom have to do? Besides picking the outfits, and picking the dress, and picking the place that they're going to get married, and where they're going to have the reception, what is the other very important thing? The guest list, right? You got to pick out who it is that you're going to invite. You want to make sure that you get everybody, right? You don't want somebody being offended that they weren't invited uh, to the wedding. But once you finally made your list, then you have to set up things uh, in, the, in the fellowship hall so people are appropriately seated. So you have a place, obviously, for the bride and groom at the front, and you want to make sure that the bride's parents and the bridegroom's parents are, are close to the main table. And then you want to have other people seated based on how familiar they are uh, with the bridal couple. You want to make sure that certain people are separated. Uh, you don't want to have Aunt Gladys, who's a diehard Obama Democrat, sitting next to Aunt Harry, who voted for Trump, right? You want to keep those people separate. But here on this occasion, uh, Jesus has formed the guest list. Uh, and a lot of people are going to be surprised that they were not invited. Uh, Jesus uh, says some uh, stark words here that, should have filled his hearers with concern. Uh, he says to them that, yes, uh, there will be many who will come and sit at the same table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
but that, they are, that these people are not just going to be uh, Jews, but these are going to be people of all nationalities. As we hear about in the book of Revelation, that they will be people from every tribe, from every nation, from every people, from every racial group uh, will be there. And they will sit with the Lord uh, and with his servants at the table. But Jesus says, oh, many will be surprised. And he says this word in verse 12 that just sort of makes you uh, grimace uh, at the thought. He says in verse 11 that many will come from east and west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Jesus concludes here with a dire warning uh, that calls us uh, to believe. Uh, There will be a lot of surprises uh, on Judgment Day. Many will think that they are surely included on the guest list, and they will not uh, be allowed into uh, the reception. Uh, Many people struggle, though, with this concept, uh, this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Maybe you're one of them. Right now, this is one of the sticky points that you have with the Christian faith, that a God who's supposed to be all loving and all kind uh, would send people uh, to such a horrible uh, place. But Jesus is one that desires us not to go there. That's why he speaks about it. Jesus spoke about it more than anyone. He desires us to not uh, go there calls us uh, to faith uh, and belief. He calls us to have the faith of this centurion uh, who says, Lord, you could just say the word and my servant will be healed. So the passage concludes with Jesus saying, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. There's several parallel passages to this passage uh, one in the book of Luke, uh, and one in the book of John. The one in the book of John describes how the servant, uh, or the, uh, the official, it's the official in the book of John, who left and went home and discovered that the, the child was uh, healed and sort of compared watches uh, with the people who were taking care of the servant and discovered that the healings were, you know, the recovery of the of the servant was at the same time that Jesus had said, your servant will be healed. And I don't know about this centurion. Uh, we learned from the book of Luke that he was the one who helped build their, their uh, temple or their uh, synagogue there in Capernaum. So perhaps he was local, but I'd imagine the same thing happened when he went home and he asked those people who were caring for that child, when, you know, when did the servant begin to feel better? They realized it was at the same time that Jesus had said the word. So what do we learn from a passage later? What do we take away from this? Well, we learn three brief things about God's word uh, in this passage. First of all, we learn that God's word is powerful powerful. Jesus does not say meaningless words, right? Every word 
that Jesus says has weight. Uh, every word that he says is powerful and mighty. Uh, so mighty that he can just say something and it will happen. Uh, remember that occasion where Jesus came to his disciples on the water? Came to them walking on the water and got into the boat and told the wind and the waves to be still. And everything became calm. Just think about that. Are, how many of you, probably some of you are very scientific-minded. Uh, now just think about what happened there on that occasion. Uh, Jesus comes and says, be still. And okay, so he turned off the wind and he turned off the rain. Okay, I'll accept that. But then when that happens, what happens to the waves and the water? Do they stop immediately? No, usually there's like a, a release of residual energy that is still uh, causing the waves to, to bounce and to, and to turn. But on this occasion, Jesus said, be still. And he not only turned off the water, turned off the wind, but the waves stopped and the waters became flat. That is power. This is the power of God's word. He was uh, in the beginning, as John tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Not a God uh, like the Jehovah Witnesses want to interpret it, but God alone. He was in the beginning, uh, and all things were made through him, and without him was anything made uh, that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus was one who was there in the beginning uh, with God, creating the heavens and the earth. And I love those passages in Genesis 1, where I can just imagine God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are there in unison repeating this common phrase, let there be, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. That is the power of God's word. This is the power of Jesus. He can not only heal from a distance, but he can bring into existence that which had not never existed before. He could take and create uh, the heavens and the earth out of nothing. That is the power of God's word. And that is the power that is alive in you because of Christ. It is a word, a power, a divine power that has been granted to us that we might receive the glory and the majesty of God. Do you need a powerful word spoken to you this morning? What's a word that you need to hear Jesus is speaking uh, to you through his word, the power of his grace. Will you receive it? So God's word is powerful. Secondly, God's word uh, is true. Jesus' words are authoritative and true. They never lie, nor do they ever seek to deceive. They are always pure and true. Even Jesus' frightful words of weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, are intended that we might understand 
uh, the truth of what he is saying and that we might be able to uh, avoid uh, that, uh, that disaster. Uh, Jesus is one who speaks the truth. And he says, remember that occasion where he's speaking to Pilate. Pilate says, you are a king. Uh, and Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is one who speaks the truth, and he declares that he speaks the truth, and his father uh, declares that he speaks the truth. But in the book of John, Jesus understands that many times people are just not going to believe him. And so he gives a list of those other people. He's almost like a, de a defense attorney that brings forward those who will testify uh, to the truthfulness uh, of his words. And so he cites such people as John the Baptist who bore witness to the truth or Jesus' miracles. So Je Jesus said, if you're not going to at least believe what I'm saying, believe what you're seeing. That people are healed, uh, that lepers are cleansed, that people are raised from the dead. At least but believe that. He speaks of the Old Testament scriptures that speak to the truth of who he is and what he says. Moses as well. Jesus says to the group there in uh, John 11, he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. Jesus also uh, can refer to the gospel writers. John says in 1935, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. All these people are speaking to the truth of what Jesus said. I'm even convinced, in an ironic way, that even Jesus' enemies were speaking the truth of who Jesus is. Remember the occasion where Jesus had healed, the, healed Lazarus, Lazarus, and the religious leaders came back to their office, lamenting what's going on. They're, going to say, they're saying to themselves, what are we going to do? We can't let this continue to go on because people are not going to believe us but they're going to believe him. And do you remember what Caiaphas said on that occasion? He says, you don't know what you're talking about. For it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. His enemies are speaking the truth of who Jesus is. He's, Caiaphas is basically confirming what Jesus has been saying, that he is going to die uh, for uh, the people, uh, for God's people. Even his enemies uh, believe, or his enemies are testifying uh, that Jesus' words are true. Uh, all of us, unfortunately, live in a world of lies, right? We live in a world of falsehood, fabrications, and fibs. It's hard at times to know who's really telling us the truth. But with Jesus, his words are always uh, true and always can be believed. As Numbers teaches us, uh, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Hebrews uh, asserts the same thing. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things, which is possible for God uh, to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. Jesus' words are true. Jesus' words are words with great power. Uh, and the words of Jesus are always uh, faithful and true. But the last thing that we see is that Jesus' words become very personal. Uh, Jesus, the word who Jesus himself, who is Jesus himself, is more than just the assembling of a vocabulary list. It's not just a mixture of nouns, verbs, and, and you know, syllables, uh, but rather uh, they are they come to us also in a person, uh, a life living, uh, a living uh, person who has come to be with us, who knows what we have gone through. I don't know if you noticed it in that song that we said, it, uh, or the hymn that we sang, it was speaking about how he knows our frame, that we are dust, right? Our God is one who knows clearly what it is that we go through and the troubles uh, that we have. The scriptures that we have are not just a bunch of instruction, moral teaching, uh, but rather it reveals itself in the form of a person who can identify uh, with us. His word to us has become personal uh, with the coming uh, of Jesus Christ. So scripture teaches us uh, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Many people struggle to have the same faith as the centurion. There are many people who will come before God, come before his word, who will listen to the message of the gospel and they intellectually understand it. Okay, they can accept that, right? They, they understand the details. There will also be people who will go from understanding to saying that they believe that it's true, right? They'll, they'll accept the premises that are taught. But then they have a hard time going from there to belief, right? Where they're actually able to speak it. I had said earlier that Jesus had posed what he said to the centurion in the form of a question. In other words, Jesus was trying to draw out from this man, from this centurion, whether he truly believed. For many people, they'll understand what the scriptures say. They'll believe that it's true, but they're not willing to give it voice. Right? They, they, they're, they're struggling at that point to put their trust uh, in God. Uh, for this centurion, uh, he was willing to voice uh, his belief. And are you there this morning as well? Are you a believer who understands, believes, but then lastly is willing to trust, who will come before the Lord and say, Lord, say the word. 
say the word into my life, speak the gospel uh, that I might be changed. Uh, God's word is powerful. It's true and it's personal and it's just for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord God and Father, we thank you uh, for your word that is spoken to us. This great and mighty word, this powerful word. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for the gifts that you give us and for the grace that is offered. Oh Lord, may your blessing be upon your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.